Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. As I said, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 6. This is our third and final week in this chapter. Uh, it's a, quite a critical chapter, as you see in verse 1, as we're reminded there in the 480th year, the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the months of Ziv, in the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. And here, uh, it's such a pinnacle point, as we looked at in the first time that we looked at this, uh, that it was it's a huge uh, mountain, you might say, as you look at a mountain range. Uh, there are some that stand out more than the rest. And when we talk about God's revelation, as he, as he reveals himself through history, through time, his progressive uh, revelation, uh, here you see what, this chapter is quite a big monument and, and accomplishment for the people of Israel and what God uh, sought to do when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And then uh, the previous week we looked at how it is uh, not merely just a new idea, but this, uh, this tabernacle, is, this uh, temple is modeled off the tabernacle. We see themes that are throughout the Bible uh, that we find ourselves in this chapter, quite this uh, critical chapter. And this week, we're going to try and look at more of a, a New Testament implications of what we see and how all of these things overlap in one way or another. That we're all looking at different questions, you might say, in each week of this one chapter. The first week, we're looking at how does this fit in in, in history? Uh, how does the second week, how does this fit in? with uh, how God has already revealed himself to the past. And then this week we're looking how does it fit in uh, with the New Testament for us, New Testament believers looking back. But we do need to be reminded of what this is seeking to be able to do and accomplish. Exodus chapter 25, uh, the Lord says, And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That merely it's not merely about the temple per se, the building, the structure of stones, it is, this is where God will come to dwell. This is where God will come to dwell in the midst of his people. God will make a way for his people to come to him, and uh, he will be with his people. And this is exactly what the purpose of the temple is, as we'll see in chapter 8, verse 10. When the priest came to the, out of the holy place, the cloud filled the, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This is exactly the purpose of what this house has been built for, that God would come down in all of his glory and all of his splendor and dwell in the midst of his people, this unclean, unholy uh, people, and yet he will come and dwell in their midst. So we see that uh, it's the only way that man can reach God is through his means. It's the only way that man is able to reach God. And, it, and we see even the glorious truth of the gospel that God comes down and God makes a way for uh, people to come. Now, uh, J.K. Beale is uh, one of the great uh, scholars, I think, of temple and temple, temple uh, that flows throughout the whole Bible. He really unpacks that idea in many different uh, books of his. He looks at the temple in Eden, and he looks at how the, the Garden of Eden is the model of a temple. And, uh, but here's a, really a summary of what he taught. 
is that uh, here you have this similar terminology, language of imagery in the garden, as you see as we'll re- when we read this passage, you see that overlap of the image of this temple is somewhat of a garden, and the garden is a temple. Uh, God's presence, again, God comes in to dwell. What is the major thing in, in the Garden of Eden? It's not merely that it's paradise. It is that God comes down and walks with Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they are cast out from God's presence. Uh, the guarded entrance, we looked at this last time with the cherubim, these angelic beings um, separating them from God's presence. The tree of life, the, the presence of the tree of life in the garden symbolizes this life-giving presence of God. Similarly, we see these tree of life images founded in the later descriptions of the temple uh, in the menorah and things like this. Uh, the, the fifth thing is the cultivation and service in the garden of Eden. Adam is set apart to work and keep the garden. This is the exact same wording and terminology that is used of the priests. They're there to work and keep the temple. Uh, the sixth is this sacred space of this mountain imagery. The garden described as this sacred space. And, and even the garden is, is set upon a mountain. These rivers flow through and down away from the garden. That uh, symbolizes the, the garden is a mountain. And so too here we looked at when we looked at the end of First Samuel that uh, here Mount Moriah, the, Lord, where the mountain where Abraham was to sacrifice David and, and said that I will provide a sacrifice for you. And here he provides a ram, a, a symbol of Christ, the shadow to come who he will provide. And then lastly, the restoration imagery, the image of a restored garden. His prophetic literature, such as Isaiah and, and Ezekiel, draws on this temple and it flows through of, of how God is going to restore Israel, God's people, back to that perfect example of the, per, the first temple in the garden. Now, with all of these things in mind, I want you to keep those seven things. Obviously, you don't need to remember them, but uh, keep those in mind as we read through this passage. And I, I think even without even making any further points, I think we'll be able to see how there's this overlap between those seven things. So uh, let me read 1 Kings chapter 6. We'll start with uh, verse 29 and then go to verse 38. Around all the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. On the floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary was made of doors of olive wood. The lintel and door posts were five-sided. He covered the two door, doors of olive wood with, carved, uh, with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. He also made for the entrance to the nave door posts of olive wood in the form of a square. And two door po- doors of cypress wood, the two leaves on the one door were folding, and the two leaves on the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold, evenly applied on the carved work of this. St- uh, he built the inner court with the three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. In the fourth year, of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv, in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month. The house was finished, and all its parts, 
and according to all of its speci- all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. So what can we see uh, from this passage? What can we understand? I, I think just quite simply we see the intricate details that go into such a building. We'll even see this in, in all the, the fine furnishings that we find in chapter 7. But here it's not merely just a block. It's not merely just a, a block building. Um, one thing that uh, often when you travel anywhere is you look at old architecture and, and the intricate details and the buildings that are built. You know, uh, They didn't have as many tools as we do, but yet they have finer craftsmanship than we do. Um, but even you go to any building now, um, even something like a school, a school is not the most uh, uh, appealing building to be able to look at. Often, especially during a certain times, it's, it was all about cost and effectiveness and just let's put cedar block up and a roof on top. You know, that's all we're going to do. Maybe we'll bring out a coat of paint and paint it, but... Here you see the intricate details that go into all of these things, the door that is set there, the, the casings that go around this door. Again, it's not merely just a box that is 20 by, uh, 60 by 20 by 30 cubits. So I've been talking about all this uh, as we've gone through it. I'm going to show a video now of what the uh, 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 suggested look of the temple is. Really, we, don't, we have a lot of details in here, but uh, there's things about it that we we really can't fathom or understand, um, you know, the the working of the details and stuff like that. So here's an interpretation of what the temple looks like. So there you have uh, kind of just an idea of what it looks like, and even then I don't think you'd be able to really truly fathom uh, what it would have been like, the size, the scope, the even the brightness of what you see. But but I think just uh, a couple of points from what we've just read before is that you, you have this, uh, this idea that you, you walk in and, and, and everything is just covered with gold. It's not merely that they went and, and chose a gold color to paint everything with. It is literally covered with gold. Uh, in Second Chronicles chapter 3, it tells that it's from Parveum um, and from, you know, uh, rabbinic sources, the gold is, is more of a reddish hue. It was made uh, to the vessel of the high priest, removed the ashes from the altar, burnt on the day of atonement, uh, and, and from Arabia. And, and here, uh, this is kind of, again, not merely just any type of uh, gold they use. They, they imported a lot of these things, getting the best materials to be able to do this. There's no uh, cost uh, no cost spared uh, building this place. Uh, you know, um, gold is, is, is uh, especially is something that would have been purified, gone through a fire. Uh, everything is out, out. So the making of the process of gold symbolizes the purity, and this is where God comes and dwells in all of His holiness. And uh, the second thing is just again that that image of of of, of the garden. You have here the, the open uh, palm trees, the flowers that are through there, the, the pillars that we'll look at in chapter 7, uh, Jaquin and, and Boaz, the two that stand on the outside with the open pomegranates on the top. 
you know, um, hundred pomegranates surrounded them. Here again, and you, you walk through, and, and this is, is meant to symbolize something, symbolize something visually to the people of God, the priests. Um, the, the people might be able to see a glimpse of it as the doors open, but really it's very exclusive what happens within here. And the Holy of Holies, that, that large 20 by 20 by 20 cubit room with the, the two overarching wings of, of the um, cherubim there uh, sitting over the ark. Again, just that image of the garden. But also even you notice that here the temple has doors. And it seems quite a foreign thing for us to be able to understand, but we understand here Here, God comes to be able to dwell in the midst of his people. Yeah, but yet there's a way for even us to have that image, that there's a way for people to be able to approach God, that image that here God dwells in his temple. But there's also another image that there's only one way to get to God. There's the, there's the way that God has prescribed. That is how you're going to get to God um, you know, a door not only just allows people to come in, but it also stops people from coming in as well. Uh, so you might have that image of that employee's only sign on the door that uh, here only a certain number of people are allowed to go in there. And you think about all the glory, all the splendor, all the money that is spent in here, and, and the only people that are able to go in the holy, holy place is priests. And the only person that can go into the Holy of Holies is a priest, a high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he was to go in there to make a sacrifice for himself and for the people of God. And this merely was not, he was going in there to spend 24 hours in that period. It would have been uh, maybe minutes that he would have gone in to be able to carry out all these tasks. So all that glory, all that splendor for God to dwell, but also that image of how he does this. But also, uh, Jesus, when he speaks of the door to the flock of the gate, he doesn't use the symbol of the temple through the door. But what he says is, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And here we see that kind of image again of, of doors been that way. But also, lastly, we see there that uh, right at the very beginning, we're told that he begins in the 480th year, the people came out of Israel. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign, in the month of Ziv, um, which is the second month. And then we find out in verses 38, um, uh, 37 and 38, in the fourth year of the foundation uh, of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all of its parts. And according to all of its specifications, he was seven years in building it. Now, when we think about the size, the scope of this project, that's a pretty quick turnaround uh, when you think about what it is, that you're, you're not merely just building it, but you're, you're getting cedars from Lebanon down here, gold from Parav, and then, uh, you know, here. Um, I think there's two, two major factors why this might have taken such a short time to be able to build. I think the first is that uh, you have David making all these preparations. You see that more clearly in, in the Chronicles. Um, that You see David really preparing all these things for Solomon to be able to build this house. That he says, Solomon's not uh, experienced enough, but I will. I'll get all these things ready. So David had a lot of things already there, uh, organized these things. But then the second thing is the size uh, of labor given to be able to construct this. We looked at this in chapter 5. 
But here, uh, Solomon is, is willing to go to great lengths to be able to get this building finished and finished quickly. So uh, here's the end of chapter 6. We see from the beginning to end the, the start of this building of the, this construction. We've looked at it uh, within the, the timeline of history. We've looked at it from the past into, the, into, the pre, um, into that present when the, the temple was built. Now we're going to you know, take a, a little bit of a, a step forward. When we think about this, when we think about the beauty and the splendor, the cost and the expense of the temple, I think that we don't often connect First Kings chapter 6 to many of the New Testament passages that we read. When we think about the beauty of the temple and all of its adornments, we stand amazed. We stand amazed at who God is, that he would come and dwell in a place like this. We see his purity, his holiness, his might, his strength, his, his, his covenant with his people. But I think once we understand this, and once we understand this is an image that many people uh, during the time of the Bible would have ingrained in their minds. Not this temple per se, of Solomon's temple, it's Herod's temple, which is even uh, bigger and grander, you might say, than Solomon's. Now, Solomon's was put up on a pedestal because of this period of time that it was. Uh, they rejoiced over it greatly. Herod's was really a political maneuvering from him uh, to be able to do that. It, it took Solomon seven years to build his. Uh, Herod took close to, you know, 70 years to build his, even longer. Um, so, But here you have the image of the temple and all of its adornment, all of its things. And then Paul makes this comment in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation, and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds it upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know? that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So here this image, when we think about God's promise to be able to come down and dwell in the midst of his people, and the great cost, the great expense the great size and scope, the purity of, of what that temple looks like. Again, it's not merely just, you know, the tabernacle is this glorious image of God coming in and dwelling in a tent so that he might move with his people. But now this is a permanent dwelling where God would come and dwell in the midst of his people. And here Paul's point to New Testament believers is God's temple is holy. And here, God's temple is holy, and God comes and dwells in you. You think about that for a minute. When we think about our sin and our wickedness, the filth of our dark, darkened heart, 
but yet God makes a way to be able to come dwell in us. But also Paul emphasizes the point that we need to be holy. Think of all those intricate details of this temple as this place. But here that again, that glorious image that God saves us to be able to come dwell with us. That image of the Old Testament. That God brings them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That they would be, he would be their God and they would be his people. It's all because of that work accomplished and applied by Christ. That we see the beauty of the dwelling place with God. Isaiah chapter 57 says, For thus is Lord, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. You're, you know, again, that image that God is high and lifted up. He inhabits eternity. His name is holy. And yet this image that Paul emphasizes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is he comes to dwell in us. That would take us a long time to get our heads around. But this, I think, is exactly what Peter mentions in 1 Peter chapter 1. You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you call on him, the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed for the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not to to perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown because the foundation of the world, uh, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news which was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy, and all slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by which you may grow up into sal- grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but at the sight God's chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are been built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here again, you can see a lot of these these images that that are ingrained in in those people, in the minds of those reading uh, 1 Peter. Here that image of gold being refined. 
that it, it perishes. But yet there's something greater. The, 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 the idea of, of purity and holiness. The, the, the trees, the, the flowers. But yet what remains is God's word. What remains is Christ's work. That good news that was preached to you. That building of the stone, that Christ was the stone that was rejected. But yet, now we are being built up into a spiritual house. Second thing that we should consider when we think of 1 Kings in light of the New Testament is found a few chapters later in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when Paul makes a point in verses 19 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Here, chapters 5 and 6, Paul is speaking about sin within the church. In chapter 5, he's talking about this this, uh, sinner who who has taken, uh, uh, he's committed sexual immorality, and, and Paul says, This is worse than the pagans. He, he should not be um, within the church. And so too in chapter 6, he's also talking about all the rotten sins that are happening. Such were some of you, he says. But you were washed, you were sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to be able to say that, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You are washed, you were sanctified, so that God may come and dwell in you. You. So he says, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Exactly where the Heidelberg Catechism begins. What's your only comfort in life and death? My only comfort in life and death that I'm not my own. That I'm bought with a price and belong not to myself, but body and soul to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Paul is speaking about this sexual immorality that's within the church and and the union to Christ. And it should drive us to purity. That application, you might say, of of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is now driven to the point here that we are to be holy. We're to live that holy life. That image of that gold, everything overlaid with gold, this great cost cost of our salvation that God sent his own son to be able to die for us that he might be able to make a way for us but Paul takes this point even further it's not only that you're uniting your body to sin Paul explains but also who you associate with he says right before this passage in verses 14 to 18 Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. 
and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. <coughs> Again here, it's not merely that he's saying that, that uh, believers should not connect themselves to sin, but believers should be cautious about how they connect themselves to unbelievers. That He, he makes a distinction throughout chapters um, 5 and 6 in 1 Corinthians about outsiders and insiders. He says in chapter 5, this man who commits this sexual immorality should be outside the church. And then he says there's, there's division amongst you and you're taking yourselves to court when you should be working this out inside the church. And in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians... He's saying here we should be cautious about how we relate and connect. How can the righteous connect with lawlessness? How can light have fellowship with dark? What do you, and then he says the temple of God and what you're doing is you're coming in and you're filling it with idols. What a strange thing to consider. You think about all that glory that, and then someone walks into the temple and says, you know what, I think this temple's missing something. A couple of idols to brighten it up, whatever that might look like. And I think here the application from 1 Kings chapter 6 is important to understand. What we see is a pure and holy temple where God comes to dwell. This made to be this house of God. We see in the New Testament that here this spiritual temple, that we are the temple which God comes to dwell. We shouldn't fill our lives with idols or sin. There's one other point that we can see from the New Testament. And that's what we see is just as the physical temple took time to be able to build and construct. This is kind of Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 2. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here the other is you might say that Paul is making the point that our bodies are like the temple of the Holy Spirit, that come, God comes and dwells with us. But here, here the image is more pluralistic, that here we're joined together, that Christ builds us together. That here, the, the image of the garden is, is not merely just the purity, but also the, the beauty of it is that here, the, the taking building a temple takes time. And God has made a way through Jesus that we are able to be able to enter Him and He comes and dwells with us. He also gives us the Spirit that builds us up. 
as we grow together into the holy temple of the Lord. They were built up to be a dwelling place for the Spirit. Not only individually, but corporately. These important truths, not only should Christians seek to be holy, but the church should seek to be holy. There is no place for this unrepentant sin in the life of the believer or the church. But I think the glorious thing in all of this, if we think that we're merely just going to accomplish this by ourselves, that we are just going to make ourselves holy, blameless, spotless, we are gravely mistaken. The glorious truth is not only the temple is that God comes and dwells with his people. But this glorious truth about how God comes and dwells with his people. In Mark, Jesus said, you're them repeating Jesus' words back to him, but he said, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And three days I will build another not made with hands. This temple is merely just a symbol, a shadow of Christ, Christ coming. Christ comes and the temple is no longer needed. He dies on a cross, he's laid in the grave. The payment is made. No need for the Holy of Holies, no need for the curtain for, to, for the priest to go in and out, in and out every year to make atonement for sin because he, he makes the perfect sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God. He ascends up to heaven, he sits down. The glorious truth is that we cannot be holy, but Christ makes us holy. Christ makes us holy that we might be able to, he dwells with us what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Is the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you? He who raised Christ, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Hear that dark, rotten inner core of the temple which is filled with our sin and our rottenness. But here, Paul says that just as Christ, the dead body, was raised to life, that same Spirit dwells in you. To be able to raise you to life. Glorious truth that the image of the temple is not merely that God comes to dwell with us. But God makes a way for for us to dwell with him. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook. Or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.